From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. The city of Philadelphia learned in March 2018 that two of the agencies it had hired to provide foster care services would not, based on religious objection, accept same-sex couples as foster parents. The city then told the agencies their contracts with the city were in jeopardy unless they complied with basic non-discrimination requirements. While one of the agencies agreed to comply, the other, Catholic Social Services, or CSS, refused. Instead, CSS sued the city, claiming the Constitution gives it the right to opt out of the non-discrimination requirement. After a lower court and a federal circuit court ruled in the city's favor, CSS appealed to the Supreme Court. The case, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, has implications not only for the future of foster care, but for the protection of all people from discrimination in the name of religion. Arguments in the case are set for this November 4th. Joining us to discuss the case and what's at stake is Louise Melling, Deputy Legal Director of the ACLU. Louise, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Louise, I wonder if you can start by orienting us a little bit with regards to the case Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, in which the Supreme Court will hear this November. Um, I gave a bit of the background in the introduction, but I was wondering if for the listeners you could lay out some more of the groundwork. Sure, I'd be happy to. This is a case involving the City of Philadelphia's contracts for purposes of entities taking up the mantle of providing foster care. The city is responsible for the safety of children. So on occasions, the city places kids in foster care in order to provide a secure home for them. For some number of years, Catholic Social Services has been one of the contractors with the city. The city learned that Catholic Social Services was unwilling to consider same-sex couples to be foster care parents in violation of a provision that says, if you receive this contract, you are not to discriminate in the execution of these duties. Upon learning that Catholic Social Services was not doing that, the city stopped that particular contract. It kept other contracts with the city, but it stopped that particular contract. The Catholic Social Services then sued the city to say, we have a right to this contract and your refusal to provide it to us is a violation of our religious freedom. We, the ACLU, came into the case representing two different organizations from the city, the Support Center for Child Advocates, as well as Philadelphia Family Pride. The first entity represents kids. They're advocates for kids in foster care. Philadelphia Family Pride has a membership organization, and its members include LGBTQ plus foster parents and prospective foster parents. So we are representing, in this case, the interests of the parents. What's critical in this case, of course, are kids and the welfare of kids and kids being able to be placed with families. So the Supreme Court is going to hear the arguments for this case this coming November, a day after the election. Leaving aside for one second what's likely to happen, what are the different possibilities? What are the different outcomes that we could expect? So one outcome, the outcome that Catholic Social Services is asking is for the Supreme Court to say that Catholic Social Services or any other entity kind of in its position has a constitutional right to refuse to comply with the anti-discrimination 
mandate. That would mean that Catholic Social Services would be able to continue to receive a contract from the city. That would be an outcome that would have real consequences of many dimensions, um, would have real consequences for kids who are in foster care because there would be fewer foster parents available. It would have real consequences across the country because this is a Supreme Court rule, and it has real consequences for when other entities can then refuse to comply with the terms, in particular anti-discrimination terms for government contracts. So that's one outcome. That outcome is Catholic Social Services wins. Another outcome, and it's an outcome advanced, I would say in particular by the U.S. government, the U.S. government has filed in the case, has come in in support of Catholic Social Services. And the U.S. government argues a number of, advances a number of arguments, but one of the arguments it says is that when the city was considering what to do here, the city discriminated against religion. And the city discriminates against religion in two different ways, according to the U.S. government. First, the city discriminates because it says, we won't let you in this program because of your religious beliefs. And so the government is basically saying, you have to let in programs, even though because of their religious beliefs, they won't comply with your terms. The U.S. government also says, city, you discriminate it because when this issue was being considered, some of your people said things that suggested that they had animosity toward religion. And they point to a couple things that were statements that were rejected by the district court. The district court is the finder of fact. But the U.S. government is advancing a position in this case. One of its arguments is urging a result similar to what the U.S. Supreme Court did in the case called Masterpiece. Masterpiece was the case where the bakery refused to provide a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And there, the United States Supreme Court said that the decision makers in that case had evidenced animus by talking about this as a case where religion is being used to discriminate when thinking that that was hostile to religion. That result is particular to this case in the sense that is a narrower ruling than the first one I discussed. The third one, of course, is that the Supreme Court can say, this is a case where the government is hiring somebody to do its job. The government has the responsibility to protect children, to protect their safety. And the government has some children in its care in this interim period looking out for their safety. And it's hired somebody else to find safe places for them to be. And when the government does that, the government can't discriminate against religion, it can't be hostile to religion, but it also doesn't have to change all its rules because somebody objects on the ground of religion. It needs to be neutral. And this is your taxpayer dollars. And in these cases, it can't be that the government has to change and accommodate its program to the beliefs of every individual. The ACLU, as I indicated before, represents interveners in the case, and we are taking the position that in this case, the government properly has a neutral term, a neutral term against discrimination. It's applying it evenly and there is no discrimination here. And the only discrimination that is at risk is a ruling that the constitution protects a right to discriminate in the way that's urged by Catholic social services. And the ACLU and others have been warning that what's at stake here goes beyond the foster care system, that in this case, there's a lot more at stake. Broader questions of around religious exemptions, around weaponizing religion as a license to discriminate. Can you talk about some of the broader stakes at play here beyond the foster care system? 
Sure, there are lots of potential consequences here. So as I indicated, first and foremost, there are consequences in the foster care context, and those consequences are both for children to find a place to be a family. The other consequence, of course, is that a ruling in favor of Catholic social services is sanctioning in the sense of approving in some form that you can get this contract and discriminate in violation of the anti-discrimination principles. In the context of other government contracts, you know, we can think about discrimination in the context of homeless shelters or benefits. And then there are many cases. There's employment, there's public accommodation services, there's health care, you know, people being, there's like another case with a petition for cert pending with the United States Supreme Court where a transgender man sued a Catholic hospital after they refused to provide him services because of who he was. He was seeking a service that other people were provided, but he was not because of who he is. So that's just a range. And obviously, if the court were to rule for Catholic social services in this case, it doesn't mean that everybody else who makes the same claim also prevails but it certainly sends a signal about where the court is. And I'm hoping that you're going to ask me whether we've seen this in history before. Well, I absolutely will now. But I just wanted to sort of lay the backdrop, too, that we are talking about limiting social services or making it harder to get those social services at a time when we are in economic distress nationwide and also in the middle of a global pandemic. So limiting access to foster care homes, homeless shelters, health care seems a bit counterintuitive. But yes, let me ask, I know just from working with you for the last 10 years that you have spent a long time dealing with these cases. So can you give us a little bit of that historical backdrop and how it's playing out now? What I wanted to emphasize is that the kinds of claims that we're seeing in the Fulton case or the other cases I mentioned they're not news. There were claims previously, for example, of schools, religiously affiliated schools that got sued for paying women less than men. And in that context, the schools said, it's our sincerely held belief that men should be the heads of households and we should, you know, given that, we should be allowed to continue this disparity. And in those cases, the courts said, no, that the rules barring sex discrimination and employment trumped In the context, there were earlier cases, most famously a case called Peggy Park, where the Civil Rights Act passed, the Civil Rights Act barred discrimination in places of public accommodation, think businesses that open their doors to the public loosely. And Peggy Park was a barbecue franchise and refused to serve Black people in its restaurant. And when there was enforcement against Piggy Park for that, the owner of Piggy Park said, it's against my faith to have the races integrated. The case goes up to the United States Supreme Court principally on a different issue, but on every way and every court along the path rejects the claim of the owner in that case. And so I think one of the questions I just regularly ask people is, why would this be different? Why would we have a different rule here than we had previously, than we had in the context of the pay disparities, than we had in the context of the rejection from the store being based on race as opposed to based on gender identity or based on sexual orientation? One other point I just think is incredibly important as we think about this is that these claims Catholic Social Services is sincere in its beliefs. I have no question about that. And I have no question about the right 
the ACLU has no question about the right of people and organizations to have their beliefs and to practice their beliefs, but it's to practice your beliefs as long as they don't hurt others. And in this context, if Catholic social services can practice its beliefs in terms of turning away families because they're same sex, it is hurting others. And it is a profound undermining of the advances that we make for LGBT equality or the advances that we make for civil rights. Look, it is all of these moments of social change are real. These conflicts come up at moments when there finally is a change and a recognition of the rights of people who have long, long been second-class citizens in the country and the sort of conflict that that can produce. I think it's also worth knowing that although it would be framed by CSS as a win for religious freedom, many have suggested that a ruling in favor of CSS in this case would actually be a blow to members of many minority faiths. Yeah, well, first of all, I just think it's incredibly important whenever we talk about these cases and we talk about religious freedom or we talk about the claims advanced by people of sincere beliefs in these cases to recognize that within every religion, there are differences of perspectives so that we can't characterize religion or religious beliefs in any way as a monolith. And that's true within any one faith as well as among many faiths. In all of these cases before the court, you will see, for example, you will find Christians on both sides of the filing based on either side of the case, you will certainly find people of other of faiths coming in, for example, on behalf of the city of Philadelphia in this case, talking about their understanding of what religious freedom means and also highlighting the importance of religious freedom being about all faiths and all faiths needing to exercise their rights. And Louise, isn't there an argument too that a win for CSS could also be bad for business? I mean, CSS's argument would hurt government's ability to partner with the private sector, wouldn't it? That argument is definitely advanced in the case that the governments may become increasingly reluctant to hire out, to contract with private entities to fulfill government roles if what they think is that those contracts first are then subject to the terms of the contractors, really, and that then no longer is fulfilling the government function the way the government believes the function should be fulfilled. Absolutely. You know, a point that you've made before is that cases like this are actually part of a coordinated effort to create a license to discriminate across the country and that we can't look at these cases in isolation. I'm wondering if you can lay out for us why it's so important to understand the broader motivations and the broader trajectory behind this case and others like it. I want, in answering it, to invoke my colleague, James Essex, who's the head of the LGBT project at the ACLU. I was at a meeting where he first talked about Plan A and Plan B. This case involves what's part of Plan B. Plan A is a plan to resist change, to resist change that protects us from discrimination. So Plan A is to resist, for example, the recognition of same-sex marriages. Plan A is to resist the notion that non-discrimination laws would bar discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity in employment contexts. Plan A is to resist recognition of the right to abortion and access to abortion. Plan B comes into play when Plan A hasn't succeeded. So here is a case of Plan B, which is to say, oh, there's this non-discrimination principle saying that if we get this contract, we can't discriminate against people based on sexual orientation. 
But what we're then going to say is, but we have a right to be exempt from that. And what's significant about that is the exemption is, in essence, a way to poke a hole into the protections afforded by the non-discrimination. So as I have said on many occasions, think of this kind of as Swiss cheese. Like, you are going to have a piece, you are going to be blanketed in some legal protection at last for your equality. And instead, there are just holes being punched through. And more and, and the goal is to punch more and more holes. And that has multiple effects. So one is it means that the protections against non-discrimination become less complete, which means you're still rejected for who you are. And you're still anxious then, of course, about engaging in society when every door you open could be one that gets closed on you because of who you are. But it also is a way of continuing to contest the right. It's a way of continually coming in and saying, we have an objection, a moral objection. And our moral objection to that, our religious objection to the recognition of that right must be recognized by the state, must be recognized by the government. So the right the right to non-discrimination, the right to marriage is never settled. It's always being challenged as illegitimate in some way, in a way that is meant to undermine the right. So what's really at stake here, this is about LGBT rights. That's what this case is about. It's about kids. And first and foremost, in the most concrete way, it's about providing adequate care and homes for kids and maximizing the number of homes so that kids can have a place to be. But it's also, it's about LGBT rights and it's about whether that right is robust and meaningful. I did want to ask in the context of thinking of this image of Swiss cheese and that that's essentially what's happened, that if you poke enough holes into the blanket protections at a certain point, it stops to function as a blanket. You've done so much work in the reproductive rights space over the course of your career, and I'm curious if some of what you've witnessed in the attacks on Roe have any bearing or similarities to what we're seeing now with this Fulton case and with other religious refusals cases. Oh, on some days I think of myself as the canary in the coal mine in the sense of having gone to James Essex, the head of the LGBT project, one fine day to say, oh, I hear that there's calls for religious exemptions, for exemptions from your non-discrimination laws. Let me talk to you about how it went, how it's gone down in the context of the reproductive rights movement. Let me caution you because I think the fact that so early on there were provisions saying that institutions could refuse to provide services, medical providers could refuse to provide even referrals and information, is part of what has continued to leave the right to abortion so stigmatized and also so isolated and therefore hard to access. And we see that all around the country in terms of the extensions of how much further out the push is, which is why I, I have talked about the possibility, of course, that these exemptions sort of swallow the rule. If entire institutions can just say, no, we won't let you in the building for this service because we think it's wrong. It is a real taint. It is a scarlet letter, in essence, a scarlet A. And I'm sorry to have seen that happen in the reproductive rights space, and I certainly don't want to see it happen in the LGBT space. And once again, what this is about is the fundamental right to equality. And of course, it feels like a worrying indicator that just a few weeks ago, Justices Alito and Thomas, in a separate case, made a claim, as I understand it, that the 2015 
Obergefell decision, which was around same-sex marriage, that they basically made a full frontal assault on it. Did I understand that correctly? Is that an indication that we're talking about more than just chipping away at LGBTQ rights and the notion of same-sex marriage altogether, and that this is becoming more than just a Swiss cheese situation? Well, first of all, let's not minimize the Swiss cheese in terms of what the consequences are, but also the Swiss cheese is to continue to poke more holes. And ultimately, as I said before, that's about contesting the core right. You continue to undermine the legitimacy of the right by virtue of this form of protest. At the time that the court had before it the Obergefell case, the case in which there was a challenge to restrictions on same-sex marriage, there were ample briefs filed saying, court, don't do this. Court, if you do this, you are going to wind up infringing on religious liberty. And the court, as we know, based on the ruling, did not countenance that argument in this context the Alito opinion to which you refer is doing is saying, this is still a problem. We told you then, we're telling you again. The act of recognizing same-sex marriage continues to pose a very real problem for religious liberty and therefore in that dissent calling into question the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. We're just going to see more and more and more of this. The case Fulton before the United States Supreme Court will be very significant in terms of how it rules. But it is one of many, 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 many cases around the country presenting a similar challenge to an anti-discrimination. And the cases range from challenges to a requirement that you have to provide referrals and information about medical care to challenges to rules that you need to address students by their proper pronouns to challenges to any requirement for coverage of abortion in a healthcare plan to challenges to refusals to provide services to somebody because they're a transgender individual. And I could just go on. And of course, when we have a Supreme Court case, in some ways, it's a moment to uplift the fact that this is something we need to desperately pay attention to. That this is one of the cases that rose to the Supreme Court, but there is so much going on and that as a whole, we need to be paying attention to this kind of attack on the rights of people. I very much appreciate you saying that we need to pay attention to this. This argument is going to be held, I believe, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the day after the election. So this case will not get the attention that it deserves. But I think the one thing I really hope that listeners will understand is that do not minimize what these cases are about. These are not about a single exception and that you can sort of go home and feel comfortable and think, well, the core right is still there and this is an exception. These are cases that are really fundamental challenges to our very achievement of the non-discrimination principles. These are cases that are about the core rights. This is a case about sort of the solidity word about how solid we shall treat our notion of anti-discrimination and how robust that shall be and whether it is just corroded and eroded. In the lead up to this case, which right now is only some weeks away as of the time of this recording, what should listeners be watching out for? What should be on our radar as we lead up? And and what can people at home listening who are not the lawyers arguing this case, who don't work at a legal advocacy organization, what can they do? So I think one thing that listeners can do is to be talking to people around them about what's really at stake in these cases. As my prior comment indicated, I think that people sometimes think that these cases are about, oh, a small exception. And they think it's sort of modest and they're not worried. It's just back to an analogy about abortion. It's it's another chipping away, right? It's harder 
I think people don't always really appreciate how much is at stake with the chipping away or the sort of poking holes in, in the equality principles. So to educate people about what's at stake here. And one way to do that is to talk to people about historical analogies, highlighting for people examples of the past when principles that some people feel are sort of more subtle. People kind of accept that. And the question now is, why would we do differently here? This is the very same principle. So why would we do differently here? So talk to people about what's at stake. Make it clear for people what's at stake. Highlight other occasions where we've said no, and there's no reason why we shouldn't say no in exactly the same way here. So that's one thing. Second, oftentimes these issues are really debated in your state legislature. I think people often pay a lot of attention to court actions or pay attention to what's happening at the federal level, but I can't tell you how many of your rights are decided at the state level. And you can be a real participant in terms of trying to do everything you can to protect non-discrimination rules at the state level in your legislative debates, both by educating people and also talking to your state legislature. It's really essential. I think this is an area where conversation really can make a difference. Always conversation and action can make a difference. That's how we learn from one another. Well, Louise, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us uplift this case, which is, as you mentioned, 10 a.m. November 4th. Stay tuned amidst all the election news. Stay tuned for this case. It's a big one. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. We've launched an exciting series on voting that I hope you're all enjoying. Every Tuesday, ahead of the presidential election, we're answering a new question about voting rights in 2020. If you want to add your questions to the mix, give us a call at 212-549-2558 or email us at podcast at aclu.org, and it could be featured on the air. Until next week, stay strong.